The How To Academy podcast is the bi-weekly show from London's home of big thinking. They host exclusive in-depth interviews with world-leading scholars, artists, scientists, and entrepreneurs, exploring new ideas for understanding and changing our world. Past guests include Bill Clinton, Neil deGrasse Tyson, Elizabeth Gilbert, Daniel Kahneman, Marina Abramovich, Malcolm Gladwell, Michael Lewis, Joyce Carol Oates, Gabor Mate, Chelsea Manning, and many more. That's the How To Academy podcast, to the word, not the numeral, on Apple, Spotify, or wherever podcasts are found. If you've used a large language model, you've likely had one or more moments of amazement as the tool immediately responded with impressive content from its massive Data Cosmos training set. But you've likely also had moments of confusion or disillusionment as the tool responded with irrelevant or incorrect responses, displaying a lack of reasoning. A recent research paper from Meta caught our eye because it proposes a new mechanism called System 2 Attention, which, quote, leverages the ability of LLMs to reason in natural language and follow instructions in order to decide what to attend to. The name System 2 is derived from the work of Daniel Kahneman, who, in his 2011 book Thinking Fast and Slow, differentiated between System 1 thinking as intuitive and near instantaneous, and System 2 thinking as effortful and slower. The meta paper also references our friend Stephen Sloman, who in 1996 made the case for two systems of reasoning, associative and deliberative or rule-based. Given our interest in the idea of LLMs being able to help people make better decisions, which often requires more deliberative thinking, we asked Steve to come back on the podcast to get his reaction to this research and generative AI in general. Yet again, we had a dynamic conversation about human cognition and modern AI, which field is learning what from the other, and a few speculations about the future. We're grateful for Steve taking the time to talk with us again and hope that he'll join us for a third time when his next book is released sometime in 2024. Stephen Sloman is a professor of cognitive, linguistic, and psychological sciences at Brown University, where he has taught since 1992. He studies how people think, including how we think as a community, a topic he wrote a fantastic book about with Philip Fernbach called The Knowledge Illusion, Why We Never Think Alone. For more about that work, please check out our first interview with Steve from June of 2021. Before we get to the interview, I'd like to share some exciting news from Artificiality. After four years, we have relaunched Artificiality with a new site, new focus, and new business model. Please check out our new site at www.artificiality.world and learn about how we're organizing our work around an emerging collection of obsessions that follow and forecast the major shifts at the intersection of humans and machines. We encourage you to sign up for our weekend briefing newsletter, which, along with this podcast, will remain free. You can also learn about our subscriber and Artificiality Pro tiers, which provide access to our artificial philosophy essays, meta-research, community events, subscriber-only podcasts, and much more. Thanks for being with us. We hope you'll join us for the next phase of our journey making sense of AI. fascinated by this crossover between humans and machines. So whenever I look at these AI papers that um, just come thick and fast and are hard to keep up with, um, I'm always on the lookout for these ones, particularly that take things from neuroscience or cognitive science and apply them to AI and back the other way. And that's a really fruitful ground for for thought-provoking ideas. Uh, And when I came across this one from Meta, that had your name in it, it really piqued my attention because um, we've spent time talking before uh, on dual system thinking. And also there has been um, people talk a lot about busting the illusion of explanatory depth using um, these large language models, sort of a private and soft way of doing it. So your name's actually come up quite a few times and um, But this paper was the one that, that really made me want to reach out because it was such a direct reference to your paper in 96, The Empirical Case for Two Systems of Reasoning. So I was fascinated, I'm fascinated to, to hear what you think of kind of this overall um, process of going backwards and forwards between machine intelligence and human intelligence, particularly with, with this paper from Meta. Well, I would 
be really interested to talk to the authors uh, about whether uh, they, in fact, were motivated by my paper or by the ideas in general, or whether they came to them independently and then discovered that cognitive scientists had been talking about them. I mean, like, if you look at the role of neuroscience in the development of neural nets, it was actually pretty minimal, right? Like, it was basically, you know, cognitive scientists appreciating that the brain consists of a a whole lot of fairly stupid processors that are connected together, suggesting that there's some emergence of intelligence from all of this interaction. And, um, and, and neural nets were born and, you know, they very slowly turned into large language models. But I don't think that you had to study neuroscience to do any of that, right? Like we all know that the brain consists of billions of, relatively stupid processors. Although there are actually people who argue that single neurons are incredibly sophisticated, that they have the power of Turing machines. But but that's another issue. Um, So I'm actually, you know, I, I wish I could say that cognitive science has been central to the development of AI. I'm not entirely convinced that that's true. You know, I... So my daughter, not the one we were talking about, a daughter I have in Princeton. This is one who's now at the University of Manchester doing computer science. And we were talking one day about system one versus system two reasoning, intuition and deliberation, and how that could be realized in large language models. And... um, she had, you know, turns out that because she's thinking about machine learning, she had thought about this stuff in quite some detail and had some ideas about um, taking two nets and making them, I putting them either in an adversarial or cooperative position relative to one another and having one verify the output of the other. And all of this sort of sprang from the mind of a computer scientist, right? It didn't come out of insights from cognitive science. So, yeah, I'm not entirely convinced that we've contributed that much. That seems a lot. I mean, a lot of when you read the history of some of these discoveries um, back and forth, whether it's um, reinforcement learning and dopamine sort of going one direction or neural nets going the other, um, it's all very... um, uh, analogical, metaphorical, is sort of like an inspiration that might spark an idea, but it's it's really very, very much at that level. It's not, um, well, here's the math that would do that. Yeah. No, I think that's exactly right. Um, and, you know, what the direction of uh, insight is I, remains an open question. I mean, you're right that there are a lot of parallels between what's going on in AI and what's going on in cognitive science. There's no question about that. And and that's a fascinating fact. Um, So I actually think that the development of these large language models is by far the biggest source of insight into cognitive process that we've seen in decades, right? Um, So the analogy is certainly meaningful and fruitful, um, but what the direction of, of causality is, what the direction of insight is, I'm not sure. I'm not sure it really matters. Right? No, keep going on what you were saying before about um, what you just said about the biggest in, insight into language. Um, does it... Um, into cognition. Into cognition, sorry, uh, from the language models. That's um, Keep going on that. That's interesting. <laughs> Well, look, I mean, cognitive scientists have been trying to understand how people think for, you know, a long time, since at least the mid-50s, if, if not centuries before. And um, now suddenly we have these things that have so many human-like properties and seem to operate in ways that parallel how humans operate in critical ways, right? So like the key human-like properties in my mind are, A, their incredible incredible ability 
to do tasks that you don't expect them to be able to do, right? Like they're constantly surprising people in what they can do. Um, second, uh, their tendency to make really ridiculous errors, right? That's, a, that's another similarity to human beings. And at a deeper level, the fact that they depend so much on memory, right? The fact that they depend so much on these pattern completion operations. And there's been evidence for decades that this is how, how people reason, think, I mean, solve problems, never mind how they remember, right? Or how we remember. So it just feels like we're operating based on exactly the same kind of processes that these machines are operating on. I mean, I guess I'm sort of prone to believe that because when I was in grad school, one of my mentors was Dave Rummelhart, who is one of the founders of the neural net movement, right? He, he was critical in developing the backpropagation algorithm, which really took net neural nets off the, uh, get, got them off the ground. And so, he, you know, he opened my eyes to the analogy between human cognition and what we then called connectionist networks. Um, and the latest ones are very, very similar. They have a few additional bells and whistles, but the biggest difference is just that they're bigger, right? Like massively bigger and have massively more information. I mean, I think it's also critical that they're trained to predict, right? Like that. And there's evidence, there's been evidence for a long time that that's how the brain learns too, that it's a predictive mechanism, right? There's, I mean, I'm sure you know, there's all sorts of evidence that dopamine um, encodes uh, reward prediction error. So, so there are all of these analogies between these large language models and human cognition um, and the fact that they're as capable as they are um, and that they make mistakes the way people do sort of gives me an, an, a metaphor to use when I'm trying to understand how people are doing something. And, and the availability of that metaphor is, a, is essentially the big insight that cognitive science can now take advantage yeah. of. What's the mo been the most recent surprise for you about how these language models have, have performed? Well, the most recent one were the papers you pointed me to. <laughs> so I'm, I'm actually, because <laughs> I, like, I just looked one up five minutes ago. I didn't know about the work on the illusion of explanatory depth. I guess Moloch is yeah. the, the name. So I looked it up and, and there it is. I, I didn't really have time to explore it in detail. And that's surprising. But the one that, that really surprised me, um, I, I saw a couple of months ago, and that was uh, large language models' ability to, um, in, to, to do causal and counterfactual reasoning in very reasonable ways, in ways that seem to be to, to approach the power of humans to do that kind of reasoning, right? Now, look, all of these demonstrations um, suffer from the fact that large language models like encode such a large percentage of the internet that you don't know if they're just spitting out stuff they've seen before or if they're really reasoning anew mm -hmm. about things. I mean, in some sense, that doesn't bother me because I think that's mostly how people reason, right? Um, but in the case of causal reasoning and counterfactual reasoning, it's clear that we can reason about stuff that we've never encountered before. Um, and so it's, it's not 100% clear yet that large language models can. But nevertheless, uh, you know, they were given this sort of standard battery of causal reasoning tests and they achieved like 94% performance or something ridiculous. 
Um, and that's amazing. And the reason I think it's amazing is precisely, so we got into this conversation because Helen told me about this paper that was appealing to, you know, what people like to call system two reasoning, what I like to call deliberative reasoning, right? So cognitive scientists have been talking for a long time. The paper Helen referenced from 1996 that I wrote is about this claim that there are two ways people reason. One is essentially by memory, like one I've, I've always thought about in terms of neural net reasoning. That's intuitive reasoning, right, where we get some prompt, some stimulus, and we complete a pattern. And then the other deliberative reasoning is more analytical, right? So we focus on certain aspects of the thing we're reasoning about. We relate it to other aspects often by formal rules of inference, using perhaps formal systems that our culture has taught us, right? And, and that allows us to derive conclusions in a non-memory-based way, in a different kind of more sort of traditional symbolic reasoning way. And um, causal reasoning, and certainly counterfactual reasoning, has seemed to most people like sort of paradigmatic instances of the second kind of deliberative reasoning. So the fact that machines can now do it without having those deliberative skills is kind of shocking. Right? Yeah, so it's because I I think of I think of this as being I, I mean I have the mental model from Judea Pearl. We're at the bottom, we've got the correlations and that's machines and humans do that and then up to causal and then up to counterfactual and and up that ladder the machines come at human peril. Um, And there's the same thing with creativity as well, you know, from exploratory to combinatorial to transformational creativity and up that ladder machines come at our peril. But I've come to wonder in the last few weeks whether we, in the last few months, whether um, we've got to think it, we've got to conceptualize intelligence differently. <laughs> if And there's everything from terrible benchmarks that don't really work very well on, on machines and maybe not on humans as well, but the whole benchmarks might be wrong to how we conceptualize what it is that we do because you can feel the existential angst coming from people. You know, uh, the machines catching up through the power of language one, it tells us so much about the power of language to encode all of these things about the world, whether it's spatial reasoning and, and counterfactual or causal reasoning. But the other is, well, how do we think about matching ourselves with these things now? Yeah. Well, there have been movements in cognitive science going back at least 50 years that suggest that people are less like, you know, logical machines than, than you're suggesting, right? Than the sort of uh, standard model of human beings suggests. I mean, from, from way back to Newell and Simon's stuff on problem solving, right? They themselves appealed to, to memory processes. I mean, there are famous papers that Neil, that Herb Simon was involved in showing that chess masters, you know, don't look any farther forward than, you know, chess intermediate players, that really it's a matter of pattern recognition. Um, And that's exactly the kind of reasoning that these neural nets are capable of. And then there's work in reasoning, you know, so Peter Wason is an old British psychologist who showed that people suffer from confirmation biases and are incapable of certain basic logical of reasoning using certain basic logical schema like modus tollens. Um, then there's the Kahneman and Tversky, you know, revolution and understanding decision-making that showed that people's judgments and, and, and decision-making are based more on these sort of simple heuristics than they are on any sophisticated reasoning process. Um, there certainly has been pushback to all these claims. Like there's been a Bayesian movement in, in cognitive science for years. But to be honest, I don't feel like it's really gotten us any, you know, very far. Um, so 
there have been psychologists, and I would even say the majority of psychologists, the sort of standard story in cognitive science is that people don't reason according to the the kind of um, metaphor that comes out of the computer revolution, right? Like we're not Turing machines. That's not the way to think about us, but rather we're um, bundle, we're bags of tricks, right? We're bundles of heuristics that rely a lot on memory, that rely a lot on similarity-based processing, that approximate and take guesses, that we make errors and confabulate all the time. These are all properties of these large language models. So in some sense, I'm, I'm not surprised in the, in the way that you're describing, right? Um, what the benchmarks for, for reasoning are is, is a separate question, I think. Like, is that, that question seems to be more about um, what is the best way to evaluate whether a system is doing things right or wrong. And so I'm not sure that that particular question is as much a cognitive science question as uh, a question about you know, how to evaluate performance generally. Um, but in terms of how machines relate to people, the machines seem to be getting closer and closer. They just have so much more knowledge. Hi, it's Dave with just a brief interruption. If you're enjoying our podcast, we'd love it if you'd share it with someone who you think might enjoy it too. And check out everything that artificiality has to offer at artificiality.world. Reach out anytime. We'd love to hear from you. Back to the interview. I want to flip it, sort of flip the direction around a little bit. And yesterday in a workshop, someone asked us a great question, which was, um, are any of these products, um, any of these systems designed to help us slow down? Um, and I thought it was such a brilliant question, right? Because we're working through this, like how to make decisions with generative AI. That's, that's the topic of the workshop. And you're working through and going through all these use cases and experimenting with how to use these tools to both, you know, somehow to go find the answer, but also to help you think about your own thinking and be more metacognitive to actually you know, to, to solve a problem in a different way, to break things down. But it was such a wonderful question because you have this, this first reaction of, oh my God, these things are really fast, you know, um, because you ask a question and suddenly it's, you know, mind the data cosmos for some sort of, you know, in, incredible, you know, um, answer. Rare fact you've never heard of. Rare fact you've never heard of. <laughs> well, I shouldn't say fact. But then his question was, he didn't use the word deliberative, but it's exactly what he was asking was, are, can, has anyone using these tools to help you slow down and be more deliberative in how you receive what you're getting from these tools. And that got me thinking about like, what would it mean for a system to be able to understand when it might be more productive for you to be more deliberative? I've asked you this kind of, you know, the users asked this kind of question. Is there any way that a system could be smart enough to say, here's the answer, but hold on, here's how you got to stop, you, you, slow down a little bit, here's, your, here's a deliberative process to go through to really think through this. Like, would there, would, would there ever be a way for these things to be intelligent enough to know when it might be better to be deliberative? Hmm. Um, so... You know, un un until Helen pointed me to this work on system two reasoning, I had felt that the weakness of the latest revolution in AI has been the, the failure to make progress on issues of deliberation, right? Like th these systems really do operate through memory. I mean, it's a very sophisticated memory. It's considering correlations between elements at, at multiple levels of abstraction. It's quite incredible how sophisticated it is, but it's still memory in a way. And, and it's lacked any kind of, you know, logical, causal, um, mathematical reasoning ability, any serious um, reasoning ability beyond it, the appeal to memory. 
And so it's it's hard for me to imagine a system that helps you deliberate without being able, or sorry, let me restate that. It's hard for me to imagine a system that tells you how to deliberate, that offers a recipe for deliberation, if it can't deliberate itself. Sure. On the other hand, it seems like if you have a system that's doing all this intuitive work for you, it kind of gives you more room to engage in deliberation yourself. Mm. Right. Um, so you don't have to, you're not going to be distracted by going down the wrong path as much, one might hope, if it's delivering a reasonable answer. Um, and you're just not going to sort of feel the need to construct and reconstruct memory cues to help you retrieve things. You'll rather have that much more mental space to focus on um, like verification or, you know, serious um, logic or, or math or something like that. Um, whether people will do that, I have no idea. <laughs> no, I, neither do I. But I have. I, I, it does People are break. unpredictable. Oh, aren't they, Jess? <laughs> there's something that I've that we've consistently noticed, though, um, in our uh, decisions with generative AI workshops that we've run quite a few of them now. And here's something we've consistently noticed: before we ran workshops on just how to make decisions with data, the biggest problem that we had was that people would instantly go down rabbit holes with data, make uh, jump to conclusions about solutions and and run off to the races. And you know one of the nudges in our book came from a good friend who's a, a, a coach and it was like wallow in the problem and we had delay intuition from Kahneman. you know where it's like it, it, we had to put so much effort into keeping people in the problem. Now it's actually hard to get them out of the problem. They start using ChatGPT or Claude or, you know, Bing or whatever, and they seem to just naturally stay in the problem. It's, and they, they become more deliberative from lots of different directions. I hadn't, you hadn't thought about it as deliberation, mm. but it's essentially what it was. But it's, it's changed the entire fabric of the workshops. The whole vibe changes in terms of problem solving and decision-making where it's for the first time, it's not don't jump to a conclusion. It's like, okay, okay, let's keep going. You know, it's quite, it's quite a strange shift in dynamic that we've been talking about, but haven't been able to put it into that kind of frame that you just alerted us to. And part of that could be that people are learning how to use this new form of intelligence and having that experience. And so that's, interesting and engaging and pulls you into be just sort novel. of immersive. Yeah. But I think there's also something about the conversational <clears throat> nature of interaction. So in the past it's, well, here's the data that came from your, you know, some sort of data, you know, portal and it's there. And then I have to convert that into a slide because everybody communicates in PowerPoint and you're just trying to, your focus is on the output and what you're, what you're creating Whereas now this interaction with these tools is conversational and you say something and they responds and then it sometimes has a little thing at the end to sort of, you know, well, this is some other things you might do, you know, and obviously in our structure, we're focusing on getting people to have this iterative, you know, keep going, keep, keep digging. If that isn't really right, keep going. And then they find that it's like it sparks some, you know, curiosity in something that they would have just kind of moved past. Yeah. That's almost an aha moment. Yeah. The aha being I can keep talking to this thing. The yeah. first answer isn't necessarily the answer. There's more to do here. And the challenge now is to actually get people to talk to each other, not just the chatbot. <laughs> you know, it's it, it pulling them back out of that process is really quite tricky. Hmm. Yeah, that, that, that's fascinating. So this is something I don't have any direct experience with. Do you think that... Um, Interacting with the chatbot is fundamentally different in that regard than than interacting with another human being. Like, is is interacting with does interacting with another human being keep you as engaged in the particular topic as you're suggesting that interacting with the chatbot? I think does? it could, 
um, I think it takes a particularly focused person that you're talking to, right? Like if you have, you know, a directed conversation and you're scheduled to have this particular conversation, if you're talking to a coach or, a, you know, somebody who's actually like their job is there is to be focused on what you want to talk about. But I think there's something interesting, which is that these chatbots, their job is to be talking to you. They don't get distracted. They don't go off on some other tangent, right? Um, and their their pure focus is about being responsive to you. And that's pretty um, engaging. That's attractive. There's something that's, you know, paying attention. The other thing I think we've seen is um, um, there really is nothing there's no way that there's a dumb question or a dumb prompt, you know, you don't have that. Like, well, I'm not sure I really mm -hmm. want to like offer up that. I don't really know what I'm talking about, or I'm not really sure, you know, because this, the chat between the two of you is essentially private. I mean, yes, we've got all the security concerns of the tools, but in reality, it's not like somebody's reading and going, oh, you idiot, <laughs> you know, and, and there's always that risk with another person that somehow that other person is going to feel differently about you because you asked a naive question or just a novice question. I don't really know much. So can I ask you, you know, um, and that, that, that'll never happen with a chatbot. You can ask it a completely beginner question. And that's where, in some ways that's where the tools shine is when you don't know much, right? That's one of the best use cases. I don't really know much about this, so I'm going to ask it. So there's something about that that I think keeps and the more the more questions you ask, the more that just pop into my mind. Um, yeah. I think there's a there's a couple of differences that I've particularly noticed that are that seem to repeat themselves. One is that um, you don't, and some of this is my personal reflection, but you don't sit there thinking of your answer when the chatbot's talking to you. Like you can, you, like you do with a person, right? You sit there and the person's talking and you're thinking, oh, what am I going to say next? Whereas you don't do that with a large language model. You're actually reading the output as it comes. The one I notice in the groups it, is that, and people have said it to us, is um, there's no distraction to gossip. When you're talking to a person, something in the physical world happens or something, you get some sort of distraction that's completely orthogonal to the, completely unrelated to what you're talking about. And suddenly you're talking about the latest office and political gossip, you know, who's done what to whom. So the, 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 just the focus and the attention and the ability to stay in the topic, but at the same time, there's this sense of freedom that you can wander into related parts of a topic. And partly because if you're asking questions that do that weaving and that combination from memory that these large language models are just so good at, you get really curious about the next thing. So the, the types of rabbit holes you go down with the machine because of its memory are just really different to the types of rabbit holes that go you go down when you're having a conversation between the two. So between the two of us, if we're talking about what's happened today in AI, we have this noisy bouncing around, well, I just saw this sort of conversation. And what do you think about what might have happened at OpenAI? You know, that sort of stuff. Whereas when I'm having a conversation with ChatGPT on this, I my, just the rabbit holes are different. My attention is just in a it feels like it's in a materially different place. And maybe that's mm -hmm. something to do with the affordance of the screen and the chat and the prompt window. His prompt window is much bigger than chat GPT's, you know, thinking about like what it is that you're guided to pay attention to. Mm. Sort of makes me wonder. Yeah. Yeah. No, this stuff is so fascinating. Um, I wonder if it also has to do with the fact that, when you're interacting with a human being, you have multiple goals, right? Like you not only want to learn about the topic, but you want to be liked and you want to entertain the other person. Um, you know, you want to share stories to help them build an image of you. And, and maybe your interaction with a chatbot is simpler mm. in the sense that you're just focused on the topic and you're not trying to impress it in the same way. I mean, well, you know, what's clear is that most people do not enjoy um, really complex topics, right? Like the way to 
lose people's interest at a cocktail party is to start explaining things, is to engage in too much deliberation. (laughs) People want to hear stories. They want to hear jokes. They want to be light. And and I and I guess there's less pressure in that direction with with the chatbot. Ah, uh, that's so right. You're, you... I really just one last comment. Um, Dave's point that um, you're able to ask stupid questions strikes me as really important. Right. So um, you know, I wrote this book, The Knowledge Illusion, with Phil Fernback, and after we wrote it, Phil wrote a blog post about the importance of asking stupid questions. And, you know, as a teacher, um, I'm constantly encouraging the class to ask stupid questions. And, and nobody wants to do it, right? Because everybody wants to come across as the smartest person in the room. And you ask a stupid question, you're revealing your ignorance. It's just it turns out that 75% of the class benefits from you asking a stupid question. So, So the freedom to do that, feels like really, really important. That does, because it's, you're right, it is hard. It's so hard to step up and do that. As it's somewhat of a tangent, but maybe it's helpful (laughs) sometimes when you're trying to encourage your class. One of the, one of the sort of, um, the words that I can never forget um, from Steve Jobs is he always, he would start things off by saying, well, this might be a dopey idea. You know, and What a great way. First of all, dopey is less painful than stupid, right? Um, but also as a leader to just start off with, well, this might be a dopey idea. And, and just accepting the fact that most ideas are dopey. Every once in a while, there's one that isn't. And what's nice is that it, invi- it starts with, well, this is probably dopey. That's the default. You know? Now we can filter mm-hmm. that down and try and find maybe some good ones. Um, mm-hmm. But I think that it's interesting thing. So you can you can say it's, it makes it easier to have a, make a stupid question, ask a stupid question. You um, you don't have this sort of um, uh, urge or burden, depending on how you think about it, to be liked, um, to share stories that that help you empathize. All of that that sort of that cognitive work that we do that is so important about building human relationships. But you don't have you're not doing that with the tool. Um, you're also not worried at all about fatiguing the tool, right? I can get back a list of, well, can you give me five ideas? And if I asked you that and you gave me five ideas, I might ask you to dig down one. And then I'd be like, I'm going to be kind of a bother if I ask you about every single one of them. And I ask you three times to go deeper on each of them. And now I've asked you 15 questions, you know, I think you might be like, all right, Dave, it's time, you know, whereas the tool, like you can keep going for days, and dig deeper and deeper, you know. And well, I don't know. We just saw this yeah. morning that ChatGPT doesn't like to do that forever. <laughs> forever. It will stop, but a lot <laughs> longer, right? Yeah. And so you can go so much deeper, which taps into that sort of deliberative part. At least for me, when I'm really trying to deliberate something and I see five items in a list or something, if I'm being truly deliberative, I want to yeah. dig into each of them until I feel that I've satisfied my curiosity, that I actually understand each of those. That's seems to be much easier in a chat bot than it is with a person just because I'm worried of kind of pissing you off by taking too much time. Yeah. But of course there's more, I mean, that's a great point, but there's more to it than worried about pissing you off. It's also the fact, like if you ask me a question, I'll answer it to the extent I can. And if you push me harder, like I'm already tapped out. Right? <laughs> if, if, I, if I could go deeper, I would have the first time. Whereas ChatGPT or, you know, any of these chatbots, um, they can go deeper because they can start searching different aspects of their knowledge base. So to some extent, that I think that's a function of just knowing something. Yeah, and there's a feature aspect to, to it, and at least some of these tools were, are, you know, they don't answer everything, obviously, that, that they know. Part of that is it's just way too much, and part of it is it'll cost too much. Because, you know, the, the, the longer the response, the more, you know, the more compute it takes. Um, but I do really like that part of the iterative that I got part of the answer. And then I'm choosing the next step question. Sometimes it's, can you just explain that a little bit more? Or it's, well, but what if you did that and thought about it from this angle? Like, I'm part of that journey of getting to a point of exhaustion. And you're right, though, it is my exhaustion of learning rather than its exhaustion of knowledge. 
um, at least sometimes. Yeah. But sometimes, when you're with when you're with a human, yeah. it's sort of the exhaustion of and the ignorance display happens on both sides, right? Sure. So the, you ask a stupid question, you're worried about looking stupid, but then the person answering eventually has to look stupid. You want to stop before you have to say, you know what, I I, I'm, I don't know anymore. Like you've got the end of me, and you know, we have to. We do that when people ask this question. I say, oh, you've actually exceeded my knowledge. Right, well, but it's I'm, not a cool thing to say. I don't like saying. I'm going to grab this one because I think in the first podcast we had with you, we asked you to speculate on what the impact on the, of the knowledge illusion would be, right? And sort of thinking about what's the impact of the knowledge illusion from being able to search the world through Google. And um, there was, I think we hit where you got to point of being like, that's all I know. Stop asking. <laughs> but So I'm going to risk that again. I'm, I'm, I'm going to, you know, and it was fair, which was, look, this is, this is what we did our research on. And what you're asking is a speculative question, which you hadn't done research on, which is totally, totally fair. I don't mean to be negative at all. See, here I am trying to be In that case, it probably wasn't mine. <laughs> yes. It was probably Adrian Ward's yes. research, but I'm I'm I just I'm going to add to risk it again because it, it we we have think of, we we still every time we talk about decisions we talk about the knowledge illusion and we ask people to explain how a toilet works um, and by the way every time we do it it affirms it confirms aligns with your research every single time um, but I we've thought about it a lot that now these chatbots have even potentially a broader amount of information than you can access, or at least it's easier to access the kind of information it is than the multiple click steps you have to go through Google, go to Google, then find an article, da, 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 da. And I just, I continue to wonder about what form of knowledge illusion we will experience as we become used to having these extraordinary large language models in our pocket that we can ask a question at any time. And I know that's a speculative one because it's also, we also know that these things have like, it's all over the place that they haven't, that they have error rates, but I'm just, I, I sort of wonder what that means for people. And as organizations are thinking about em- embedding these inside their tool set, what kind of knowledge illusion could all these people be experiencing? Because, well, I've got basically every digitized re- you know, recording of human history in my phone. Yeah. Well, b- b- before I, I speculate on that, let me ask you something. Do you think it's possible that part of the the focus that people achieve with chatbots has to do with the fact that they don't trust the answers, mm-hmm. that they're just not certain about what they're getting back, and so they want to verify it? So they kind of look for coherence between what it's saying and other things it says as a means of verifying what it's saying? Yeah, I I would, well, I'll caveat my answer by saying we have a, we have a biased set of anecdotes in terms of observation. And I say that because we start off working with people talking about the errors and thinking and, and, and talking about how generation of, any form of content, but most of the time we're now working in text, but generation of text is really cheap and easy and fast. And what's valuable is the human judgment on what comes out of the tool. So we're prefacing our group to be thinking as a skeptically and with judgment, right. And applying their judgment. So almost to the point of trying to catch it. Out. Yeah, so so our experience will be a little bit will definitely be quite biased in terms of watching how people use the tool. I I think what you're saying though is what we observe, which is they get the answer back and they go, "Huh. Okay. Let me ask a little bit more about that." Or let me think how like is that because we start off with thinking about um how can you use these tools when accuracy doesn't matter? Because you can't always rely on the accuracy. So what are ways to use these tools where that's not a problem, which then primes people to think, hmm, this may not be accurate. Is that okay? You know, so well, we, and we also start, setting them up to be deliberative, I guess. Yeah. Well, the, and we also answer. start with a, um, the approach in is, is the things that the language model is particularly good at, like writing lists of the 
of standard practice ways of doing things or best practice ways or or writing a, a creative ideation of different things and combinations. So people are primed to be discriminatory, to have a list of 10 things and say, oh, three of those are awesome, two of those are meh, and the rest I don't care about. So they're looking in that discriminatory kind of way, like what can I get rid of, what do I want to take? It's almost like a sorting process that they're taking on. So I think that influences yeah. it. When, they, when people go right. deeper and they're more in a creation mode, they're looking for like they're creating code or they're creating images that are and it's less discriminatory. It's more, ha, huh, that's what I want. It's more sort of it, they almost become a little bit more subservient to the machine. Um, mm -hmm. And then I think that actually goes away. And I think there's almost a mode of thinking that shifts as you engage longer and go into a more complex use case. Um, but certainly in the starting out phase, it's just a straight sort of looking to looking about what to remove as opposed to what to take, you know what I mean? Um, but that's a good question. I'm going to think yeah. more about that. Mm. Well, I mean, so the reason I asked it was, you know, in an effort to – say something intelligent about Dave's question um, about what's going to happen to the illusion of explanatory depth when we all have little chatbots sitting in our pockets. And, you know, so on one hand, we, we'll have fewer human relationships, right? Because we'll have these strong relationships with our chatbots. So that might reduce the illusion, right? So my belief is that a really significant part of the illusion comes from the fact that we depend on others for our knowledge, right? So we think we understand how toilets work, even though we don't, because there are other people who do understand how toilets work, and we have access to those people. We have access to the knowledge, so the knowledge is residing in our community rather than in our heads. So on, on that view if the knowledge is residing in a chatbot that we have access to, then yeah, that's going to pump up the illusion big time. Right. And in a sense it should, right. Because we do have that knowledge. We do have access to that knowledge. Um, what, what's going to be critical is the degree to which we trust it. Mm. Right. So, if you believe in a community of knowledge, then relations of knowledge become relations of trust, right? We know whatever it is that the people we trust know. So will we trust these chatbots? You know, do people now trust the chatbots? I think the, the answer to the question really depends on what you think about trust. You know what happens when we have um, the illusion of knowledge, but that knowledge is an illusion itself. Oh, meta illusions. <laughs> well, at times, I mean, you, you think of the the knowledge in the system as being an illusion. I mean, there is, you know, because mm. of its predictive nature, and because of the, you know, the the it be acting as a guessing machine and and having hallucinations like. Is it truly knowledge or is, is it the illusion of knowledge? I don't know. <laughs> I'm asked. That could be a dopey question. <laughs> that could be a dopey question. I'm sitting there idea. trying to figure out what you're talking about. <laughs> what, what, what is knowledge anyway? Right? Is there actual knowledge? What does it mean to know someone? Like, yeah. I, I don't. I suspect there's not a solid answer to that. Question. Well, no. say, say, let's keep going on the illusion of explanatory depth. I have been wondering, as um, as we've been playing with these image tools in particular, and the fact that you can you can just you can just make anything, and it looks real. You know, we we generate Dave generated these awesome images of Biden and AOC and Taylor Swift protesting outside of Starbucks, and and they're just they're <laughs> so real. They're and they're so uncanny and you run people through this as well and there's some text text examples and what have you but you run people through this and people suddenly have this oh wow you know what is real and what happens to the illusion when nothing might be real like all these images out of the middle east um 
I assume the ones on the New York Times are real. I assume the ones on TikTok are maybe less real. I don't know. But this illusion for me has started to really um, break down with all of the fakes and the knowledge that the fakes are there no matter what we try and do. So I've almost become, in the last year I've gone from sort of seeing as believing to I literally don't believe anything and then I, then it has to be proven to me. Yeah. So, look, I, I agree with you and I've been going through a similar experience, right? Like any time I hear a political pundit talk, I I might come out feeling like, oh, okay, now I understand the issue or I, I at least understand a perspective on the issue. But then someone else will say something and I'll realize that what they said was BS or based on faulty data or something. And like there's just, there's so many holes in so much information we receive, right? Like never mind deep fakes, even when people are, telling us stuff directly on in reputable pu- publications or reputable newscasts. It turns out it's just such a superficial gloss on the story that there's no real understanding. And you discover this when, when you actually know something about the topic and then you hear it presented on the news and suddenly you realize, you know, what a lim- either a limited or even false perspective it is. And Yes, it takes away from one's sense of understanding, absolutely. But I, it's important to, under, to to appreciate, I think, how limited the domain that that operates in. Like, that's not going to affect your sense of understanding of toilets or toasters or, you know, or your husband, right, or so much that you experience in everyday life. It's really about this very particular set of domains that we learn about through broadcast. It's actually a small component of most people's lives. I mean, I find that you're in a, I love thinking back to your book because it has, um, you know, the book's called The Knowledge Illusion. And I feel like we spend so much time now debating what is knowledge and what is an illusion, Right. If we sit here and say what is real, you flip that around and say, well, if it's not real, it's an illusion. Well, what is an illusion really? Is it is it is it truly an illusion or is that real now? And so there's two words I keep feeling like we're we're banting them around. And it actually matters so much because of what we you know, because of the the sort of the core thesis and understanding that we know what we know from a community and we think we know more we do because of the community. But now we're asking these, this, this whole world of AI is at least for us, asking these fundamental questions of what does it mean to know something and what is the reality of knowing anything and what is the reality of anything? And I realize that's just sort of like maybe a little, a little too philosophical for this time <laughs> in the morning, but it, but it, it does just sort of, I keep feeling like every time we bring up, you know, your work, it falls into this like really fundamental question of the change that AI is causing in the world. Hmm. Yeah, that, that, that's interesting. So what does it mean to know something? I mean, look, I'm, I'm, I'm a pragmatist, right? So what it means to know something is, to answer questions correctly in in the sense that there are questions whose answers refer to something measurable in the world and they and thus they can be determined right or wrong right so if i'm making a prediction about you know uh whether or not i don't know you're going to publish this podcast um i'm going to be right or i'm going to be wrong if, if I'm making a prediction about whether if I move my right leg forward, I'm going to fall down the stairs, um, you know, I'm going to be right or I'm going to be wrong. So when, when the claims one is making, when one's representations are grounded in the world, right, then I, I think knowledge becomes a rather concrete thing because it's, it's measurable. I mean, and, that's sort of what defines science, right? Science is 
something constitutes science, in my opinion, when it involves claims that can be true or false. And there's a way to determine whether they're true or false. Um, so there's a lot of stuff that that we can't, that isn't grounded in that sense. Like, you know, what what's morally right? What's morally wrong? You know, I, I don't know how to measure the answer to that question. Um, who's going to be the next, the, the best person to be president, right? It's not so clear even that is is can be well grounded in that there's so many different ways of measuring that and and you might care about different things than somebody else. So I I agree that the notion of knowledge um is often ill-defined. But nevertheless, you know, if we're talking about like a chatbot, right? there are certain things we can measure um, that will allow us to determine at least in those domains, whether it's knowledgeable. Or yeah. Not. So just because we can't, we don't know everything doesn't mean we don't know nothing. We don't know nothing. Did I say that right? <laughs> Sounded upside down. <laughs> Paul Bloom um, wrote a great article in the New Yorker, I think um, yesterday or the day before about um, using AI for uh, moral reasoning. And he sort of flips the script and says, well, you know, maybe AI is actually better than us. Um, and it's, he, he did it in a nice way. He didn't do it in sort of a technocratic kind of um, way like a venture capitalist would. It's more a, a question about um, the difference between sort of aligning AI with human values as opposed to um, maybe saying that the, that we can take out the best of human values and code those and use them to help situations where the human values aren't operating as well as they should be, for example, or being able to expose the differences between them. <clears throat> He's a good writer. It's a, it's a worthwhile read. I'm going to take this opportunity to plug my next book, awesome. which, is, which is about um, sacred values versus consequentialism, right? So there, there are different strategies for making decisions, one is kind of the way we normally think about decision making to optimize consequences, right? To get the best results, to get the highest utility from our decision. But the fact is that in many domains, what people often do are apply sacred values, right? And they, they don't even think about consequences. They just say, I have the right to own a gun, right? Whatever the, the consequences don't even matter. It's just my right, right? Or I have the right to have an abortion, right? Um, and so if somebody is going to appeal to values, I want to know what kind of values they're talking about. I want to know if they're talking about values that apply to actions, what's right and what's wrong. Are those the things we should be teaching AIs? Or are we talking about values that are applied to outcomes, mm. right? Are we, are we talking about values that sort of maximize interests? And then we, can, then we have to be clear about whose interests we're trying to maximize. And in the world of AI, you can, I mean, it, it strikes me that, um, you know, OpenAI's um, goal is to create general intelligence um, that can, uh, uh, I think what it basically, I'll paraphrase, but it can exceed any human in economically valuable tasks. So their their goal is to create their 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 measurement of value of the of the AI at least in terms of their mission is economic value. Right. So that sounds like a consequentialist notion yeah. of value. Yeah. Well, which, which may be fine, but you know, like take something like freedom of speech. So I believe we all have the right to free speech or we should all have the right to free speech. Um, we could obviously talk for a long time about exactly what that means, but nevertheless, I'm going to come, I'm, I'm, I'm going to arrive at the end of that conversation with notion that there is some kind of speech that should be protected. And that actually has nothing to do with consequences, right? So even people who, who want to achieve something that's the opposite of what I want to achieve, they also should have that right. 
So I think focusing on on economic um, considerations can actually be highly problematic. When is your book book coming out? Is this something that has a schedule yet? No, I've I've actually just finished the first draft. I'm on the verge of sending the first draft to the publisher. So uh, I I have no idea what the publisher has in mind. Um, I'm I'm hoping you know sort of middle of next Good. year. That'd be awesome. I I mean I ordered a book yesterday on Amazon pre-ordered that's going to that's due for release at the end of August 2024. <laughs> so. <laughs> I, I thought that was kind of <laughs> slightly irrational. And it's, it's, you don't have to pre-order my book. I'll send that'd you That would be awesome. Copy. I can't wait, honestly. Yeah. <laughs> but, but just remember, when someone sends you a free copy, you have to read it. <laughs> I read <laughs> everything. I, I read pretty much. Oh, good if I If I haven't got first through the first chapter, I won't read it. But I generally, I only buy books I'm going to read. I only accept books I'm going to read and I read them cover to cover to the point that I, in every single book I read, I find a typo in every single book. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes our interviews, like this one, trail off while the conversation continues. Thanks again to Steve for joining us. We're looking forward to the next conversation. Better than some